You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Chapter 8, and as you get there, let's go ahead and stand. We're going to look at uh, verses 5 through 11 today, but we'll read 1 through 11 just for kicks, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we think of last chapter, chapter 7, the battle against remaining corruption and the anguish of that weary warrior in verse 24 who said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Lord, we thank you for Romans chapter 8, the solution to the dilemma, the spirit of life who dwells in all those who believe in Christ. Lord, we thank you that you've moved Christians from a body of death to the spirit of life. And Lord, teach us in a way that only your spirit could do in how to walk in this life and in this power. And Lord, as the spirit always does, testify of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. We saw in chapter 7 of Romans that the law provided a marvelous standard. The law is spiritual. The law is good. The law is just. The law is right. And it gave us a marvelous standard. But it gave us no power to reach that standard or to keep that standard. But now we read of this new law in verse 2 of Romans chapter 8. The law of the Spirit the law of the Holy Spirit and how he lives in me and how he actually has a higher standard than the law of Moses. The law of the Spirit 
has the standard of Christ-likeness. But not only does this new law have this new standard, he gives us the power to walk in this standard. What does this look like in life, to have this spirit of life in us? Well, as you go to the Blockbuster or Prineville terms, the video hut or the red box, and you're flipping through the Friday night movie selections and you come to one that looks interesting and yet you begin to, you know, you begin to read the uh, description of the movie and the ratings and why it's been rated like this. And, and you're just in a dilemma. Should I get this movie that's had rave reviews? You know, where is it in the scripture that tells us what movies to get on a Friday night or a Saturday night? Where is that in here? But no longer do we need, you know, some law given to us on what type of movie to check out. But we have the Holy Spirit who dwells in us who says, no, this isn't good. This won't be something that's edifying to you or your wife or your kids. This won't be something that, uh, you know, will bring glory to me in your home. And so not only then does the Holy Spirit say no or yes, this is okay. This will be something that's good. This will be something you'll be able to worship me in. But then the Holy Spirit gives you the power to say, no, return out of cart, you know, or, or add to cart. You know, the Holy Spirit enables us, you know, or to go to that website that, you know, pops up on your screen. Should I click enter or should I run away? Or, you know, where is the verse that tells me this? Or where is that commandment in Deuteronomy and while the word is our standard, the Holy Spirit speaks to us what is good and right for us to do and then enables us to either say no or to go. We now, as New Testament Christians, surrender to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, what would it look like in us if we were given over to keeping all 613 commandments in the law of Moses? What would your Monday look like? You'd look like a Pharisee, right? And then you'd be condemned because you could never keep it. And so now we don't abolish those laws, but we walk in this ministry that the Holy Spirit works in us. We don't listen to 613 rules. We listen to one voice in us that bears witness to the law and enables us to keep even more than the law, to keep whatever the Lord says for us is good and right and glorifying to God. He enables us how to function in this new life. But as we come out of this understanding of the law, you know, uh, sin using the law as a platform for sin, showing how exceedingly sinful it is, and then we get into this new ministry of not the law, but the Holy Spirit, and there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, walking in the Holy Spirit. We dive into what it looks like to walk in the Holy Spirit and to have the Holy Spirit dwell within us. And in verses 5 through 8, we have these strong contrasts between a life given over to the flesh or that's walking in the flesh and a life that is in the spirit, as the language says. And if you look in verse 5, it says, For those who walk according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Now, what is this flesh that we read of? 
Sometimes we think of flesh as those exceedingly heinous sins, you know, the really bad of the bad, you know, uh, if you've been to Las Vegas or even to Portland, you know, you, you see the billboards, you know, that might be advertising a gentleman's club, you know, and it would just say flesh, you know, and, and that of course is something that most men, they're like, that is the sin, that is what I think of as flesh, and it, you know, burn the billboard down and burn the building down along with it, you know, and that's kind of like it, right? Uh, but really, scripturally, flesh speaks of anything of the natural man or anything of the sin-dominated self. And actually, let me move on beyond saying anything and let me say everything, okay? The flesh is everything that God is excluded from and that self is exalted in. Our conservative culture, we elevate those certain aspects uh, of one fallen, you know, of the fallen nature above other aspects of the fallen nature. But as Romans has shown us, whether you're a moralist or whether you're a pagan, all of us are brought under the condemnation of sin. We're all in bondage to sin. We're all depraved and in need of a savior. And so when Paul refers to flesh here in verse 5, he's speaking of not just one aspect that's worse than another in our fallen nature, but he's speaking to anything that's part of our fallen nature. And let me say again, everything in life that God is excluded from falls into this category. And anywhere that is man's bent towards his own good is brought into this category. The exaltation of self and the de-godding of God, it all refers to the flesh. We see here in these verses, verses 5 through 8, that ruin from within comes from the flesh. There's no neutrality concerning the state of death. You know, it's, you're either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. And our position as men and as women is at birth inherited by nature that we're born in the flesh. We're sons of Adam. It's the state that we're in. Every unconverted human is in the flesh. We also see in this set of verses that there's no affinity or no natural attraction to the things of the spirit. No man in and of themselves is just walking along one day and is just like, man, you know, I'm really feeling like a good person today and I just really feel like I'm going to go follow hard after God and the things of God. I'm just going to go walk in the spirit today. I'm just going to go speak in tongues, you know, down at the park, you know, or I'm going to go and, you know, exercise the gift of preaching that God's given. You know, it's like, no, no one in and of themselves just thinks of that. You know, no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit of God draws him. And so there's no natural attraction, no natural desire for God. We desire actually the wrong things because of the fallen state that we're in. It's in our fallen nature. But those that are in the flesh, exalting themselves, de-godding God, it says that they set their minds after the flesh. And uh, maybe you're memorizing Romans 8 with me. Maybe you're doing better than me, and that's probably the case. But back in high school group, uh, you know, we memorized Romans chapter 8. And this was like seven years ago. 
And I have to, you know, visually picture verses, uh, you know, and the numbers, and that's how I remember a verse. And so to remember uh, verse 5, I remember teaching the kids that you've got verse 5, and it's a little animal walking around, and it has a mind, and it's setting its mind on the things of the flesh. I know that's bogus, but for some of you, it might work, okay? So verse 5 in chapter 8, it speaks about this mindset. It speaks of, you know, where is your head at? Is your head in the things of the flesh? Or if you have the King James Version, is your mind after the flesh? It speaks of worldliness. Or is it after the spirit? And I like that. I like the King James uh, wording there. What are you after? Think of a song that my friend Ryan, who led worship last week, wrote where it says, I'm after your heart, O God, to bring you praise. I just think of that. Lord, what am I after? I want to be after your heart. Or are we after the flesh, setting our mind on the things of the flesh? Are we after worldliness? As G.K. Beale said, anything culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange is worldliness. Are we after that, where whatever we're doing, we've got to justify it in some way. We've got to make it seem normal. And, you know, God's standard, that's just a little strange. That's a little bogus. That's a little radical. But, you know, what I'm doing that contradicts, you know, the word of God, that's, that's more right. That's worldliness. It's following after the things of the world. This carnal mind that we read of, this mind of the flesh that's after the flesh, Ephesians tells us that this person lives according to the dictates of his flesh. Or he sets his mind on the things of the flesh. He directs his mind to this thing, to this flesh, to this worldly passion or lust. Now, Ephesians 2 tells us that the mind of unregenerate man is carnal. He has no capability to even discern the things of God. As 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We're going to come back to that later, that verse that the natural man, the fallen man, the fleshly man, the things after God, they're foolishness. They're not something that you want to set your mind on, and they're not something that you even can set your mind on as a fallen man, as a fleshly man, as someone under sin. Philippians 319 tells us that this man, this carnal man, he minds earthly things. Or Colossians 2.18 says that he has a fleshly mind. Doesn't sound very beautiful, does it? <laughs> a fleshly mind. But we contrast that with those who are actually living according to the Spirit that are after the things of the Spirit. And this speaks of a lifestyle, this walking in the Spirit that you see in verse 4, walking in the Spirit. One can only walk in the Spirit after he or she has been made alive in the Spirit. 
As Ezekiel 36 is becoming familiar to us, verse 25 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now that sounds beautiful, doesn't it? You contrast a mindset of the flesh, set on things of the flesh versus that of the spirit, a new heart, a heart that's been washed in pure water, a mind that's been washed in pure water. And man, my mind flashes to the days I used to help my dad out uh, in surgeries with his veterinary business. And man, you'd go in and you'd, you know, you'd be patching up a wound or you'd be cutting out a tumor and there was, you know, dead flesh, right? Not pleasant at all. But the surgeon's knife could take away that flesh and irrigate away all impurities, all infection. And I always loved it whenever a horse would have a giant flesh wound, a giant laceration, and the healing process would begin after surgery, after sutures, and the owner would call my dad up and say, Russ, I can't even see a scar on that animal. You know, I can't even tell that there was ever a wound there. And we give each other a high five, you know, good job, dad, you know, yeah, well, could have done it without you, Rory. I mean, the way you were holding that, no, I, I didn't have any part of it, really. I just held the light on it, you know, can you see everything okay? But man, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, he comes in and he carves with the surgeon's blade. In that process of regeneration that takes an instant, he removes the heart of stone, he puts in a heart that beats and is alive and can know God. It, it gives us a new mind, a, a renewed mind, as 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us, a mind that lives according to the Spirit, that can discern now the things of the Spirit of God we know now, we hear the Holy Spirit, man, this is good. This is good. Pursue this. Be a part of this organization. Take your family here. Go here with your friends. Partake of this food or beverage. The Holy Spirit is within us, giving us discernment of things that will glorify God. As verse 5 says, this regenerate man, this man who's been born again, sets his mind now on the things of the Spirit. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 say, If then you were raised with Christ, speaking of our position in Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died. And your life has been hidden with Christ in God. There's this new mindset. You know, um, you know, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 19 through 21, he tells us about where we should lay our treasures up. Don't lay them up on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, but we're to lay up our treasures where? 
in heaven, right? Moth doesn't destroy it. Rust doesn't destroy it. Thieves have no access to it. But Jesus tells us that where our treasure is, there our heart is also. Where your mindset is, it shows where your heart is. If your mind is set on earthly things, on carnal things, on fleshly things, on things that lower God and, and de-glory God, that's where your heart is at. You know, ask the Holy Spirit right now, Lord, am I, where's my heart at? Are my treasures, my passions, are they based here upon earth? Where they will pass away, where it's death? Or is my mind set on you, Lord? Colossians just moves from a seeking place even to a mindset place by Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on things that are above, on heavenly things. Love heavenly things. Study heavenly things. Pursue Jesus things. The language means to let your heart be entirely engrossed by them. Now that you're converted to God, now that you're regenerate, act in reverence to heavenly things, where normally there was a reverence to the things of the earth. We died to the things of the world, Colossians says in verse 3 of chapter 3, and now our lives are hidden in God. But verse 6 of Romans chapter 8 says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and it's peace. To have this fleshly mind that's focused on worldliness, it's death. These contrasts, they're simple. They're pretty elementary, right? There's something that you guys could just get up and preach about. You know, it's not that hard, you know. Carnal, flesh, death. Spiritual, life, peace. But Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 and 8 says, hey, we can be deceived so easily about this. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Wherever a man sows, that he will also reap. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. What is this sowing? Like a farmer casting seed out, waiting for a crop, a harvest in return. You know, in our application today, it's what are we setting our minds on? What are we after? If you're after the things of the world, there will be death. If you're after the things of the flesh, there will be death. But if you're after the things of the Holy Spirit, there will be life and peace. As John Stott says, the mindset of the spirit-dominated people entails life and peace. On the one hand, they are alive to God, chapter 6, verse 11, alert to spiritual realities and thirsty for God like nomads in the desert, like deer panting for the streams. On the other hand, they have peace with God, peace with their neighbor, and peace within enjoying an inner integration or harmony. This peace, this harmony, this satisfaction of the deep thirst that we now have for God, it's satisfied in the things of the Spirit. But the carnal mind, what is it? It's death. Why is it death? 
Why is it death? Verse 7 tells us, because, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Carnal mind is enmity against God. It's hatred. It's hostility. It's war. Now, I like this because it doesn't say that the carnal mind is at enmity against God or with God. That would make that word enmity an adjective. But it actually says the carnal mind is enmity. That's a noun right there. If you have a mind after the flesh, you are hostile. You are enmity. You are war with God. It's what you are. And some of you here today are war with God. As Spurgeon said, the carnal mind, he says, is enmity against God. He uses a noun, not an adjective. He does not say it is opposed to God merely, but it is positive enmity. It is not black, but blackness. It is not at enmity, but enmity itself. It is not corrupt, but corruption. It is not rebellious, it is rebellion. It is not wicked, it is wickedness itself. The heart, though it be deceitful, is positively deceit. It is evil in the concrete, sin in the essence. It is the distillation, the quintessence of all things that are vile. It is not envious against God, it is envy. It is not at enmity, it is actual enmity. You guys get it? Does this sound like something that I should tell you guys to just go look into yourself and, you know, your heart will tell you the answer to all your inmost problems? No, that is not somewhere that I should be. Yeah, just go to the cancer to fix the cancer. Go to the source of cancer to fix the cancer. It won't heal you. The heart is enmity, hostile, against God. C.S. Lewis wrote concerning the thought of unbelief being hostility against God. God wrote in his book, uh, the book Surprised by Joy, uh, his spiritual autobiography, he wrote this, I maintained that God did not exist. I was also very angry at him for not existing. I was equally angry at him for creating the world. And that's his spiritual autobiography in in his unsaved, unregenerate state, hostile against God. I was mad at him that he didn't exist. And then I was mad at him, you know, that he created the world. You know, this inner turmoil that's going on, this war against God. As Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So this is you in your unregenerate place, by nature, children of wrath. It's almost like Children of the Corn or something. I don't know. I've never seen the movie, but I've seen the the movie Box, you know, and that's just scary. You know, that's us. 
We're the children of the corn, you know. We are, um, you know, children of wrath. We're little kids on Halloween, okay? <laughs> After too much candy, no naps during the day, you know, and selfishness, okay? That's us, children of wrath, hostile against God. Colossians 1.21 says we were alienated and enemies in our minds by wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled us. That's the good news. Our fallen condition today that we see in Romans is that apart from Christ, we are flesh, we are fallen, we are depraved, we are hostile to the core against God. We are not subject to the law of God, and we can't even be. <laughs> okay? In our unregenerate, unsaved place. Again, we read it earlier, but 1 Corinthians 2.14, as a natural man in our fleshly fallen state, we do not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness. They don't make any sense. We can't know them because they're spiritually discerned. Verse 8 of Romans chapter 8. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, so we've talked about the flesh. We've talked about the fleshly mindset, that it is a pursuit of worldliness, right? It's a pursuit of temporal things, of course. But if we look at the context of Romans and of Romans chapter 8, it goes even deeper than what did you entertain yourself on this weekend, you know, or what hobbies have you pursued that are, you know, more, you know, worldly and not so much, you know, young life related or whatever, you know, what, what is this flesh? This flesh that we speak of, again, is an exaltation of our self and of our self-righteousness, and of our I-can-make-it-on-my-own mentality, and it's a degradation of the gospel of grace that Jesus has paid it all, both for, both for our justification and for our sanctification. So anytime we revert away from grace and default back to, I can make it on my own. I can do it. I'm righteous enough. I'm good enough. I've done more good this week than I've done bad this week. I'm approvable by God. Man, my voice sounds good in worship this week because I was a good boy this week. Man, I can take communion and that cracker tasted so good and the juice was so sweet because I did it this week. And whenever there's that I, 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 man, there's no pleasure from the Lord. Those who are in the flesh, those that are in the I mindset, those are that in the self-sufficient mindset, cannot please God. The Phillips translation says of verses 5 through 8, that this carnal attitude sees no further than the natural things, what I've done. But the spiritual attitude reaches out after the things of the spirit. The former attitude means bluntly death. But the latter means life and inward peace. And this is only to be expected for the carnal attitude is inevitably opposed to the purposes of God. And neither can nor will follow his laws for living. 
Men who hold this attitude cannot possibly please God. Falling and reverting to their own laws for living. I do it. You do it. Let's be real here. When you fall back on your laws for living, you're not pleasing the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, why can't you please God without faith? Why can't you just make it on your own? Why can't you labor force, you know, your way to heaven? Well, first of all, you'll never be able to do it because there's none righteous, no, not one. We are weak in the flesh and can't even do it as try as we may, as hard, hard, as try as we may, as hardly try as. Okay. The reason is because faith is the exact opposite of trusting in yourself. So when you put your faith in Christ and you receive and respond to what he has done, his perfect life becoming your perfect life, imputed into your account, his history becoming your history, his victory becoming your victory. And by faith, you receive that. You come to the table saying, nothing in my hands I bring, but my life a sacrifice. Use it now to glorify your name above all names. Lord, I've got nothing on the table. You have it all. That is total faith in God, absolute lack of faith in myself or in my own abilities. But when I come in the flesh, I'm exalting myself and I'm attempting to rescue myself as a dead person. How can a dead person rescue themselves? Oh, no, I got it. Oh, drag myself. Oh, God. Oh, that did not go far at all. You know, we, we cannot do it. It's ludicrous to think that we can. That the person in the flesh under the power and the grip of our fallen nature could rescue themselves. Cannot be done. And if it could be done, there would be no need for Jesus to come in the flesh and die on the cross. Because he would have just said, oh, you know, hey, Billy Bob down there, you were raised with a pure pedigree. You're a hard worker. You're a moralist. And by gosh, you try really hard. So it's up to you, buddy. Live the sinless life for the world. And you know what? You'll be the only one in heaven, Billy Bob. Enjoy the pool. But no, Jesus says, okay, depravity of man There's none good, no, not one. There's none innocent. There's none who seeks after God. Nobody can do it. And the father says to the son, this is the plan. This is the plan of redemption. That you would go and live a sinless life. You would be tested and you would be found blameless. And you would offer up your life and your blood as a ransom for the sin that holds all of these people captive, that if anyone would believe on what you've done, they will not perish, but they will have eternal life. That's the plan. It's only when we look away from ourselves and to Christ and to that plan that we find assurance 
But whenever we look back into ourselves, and our old man likes to bring us back to it daily, hourly, whenever we look back to ourselves, we're back at Romans chapter 7 again. For those of you who have not been reborn, who have not been saved, who have not been regenerate, you know what? You don't have it in you. You don't have it in you. You cannot make it on your own. Be saved today. If you hear the voice of God calling you today, do not harden your heart, but respond to what he has done. And you know what? This message is just as much for the man or the woman that grew up in the church, went to Sunday school, played with the felt Jesuses on the felt board, has been on the worship team, has served as a deacon or an usher or worship team member or whatever it might be. Because if you're resting on all of that stuff to save you, you're looking at yourself. Look to Jesus. On your best day, you don't have it in you to save yourself from your sins. And today, if you hear his voice, receive what he has done for you. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of God, he is not his. We see here in verse 9, the beauty of, the beautiful thing that happens in a Christian's life is that the Holy Spirit comes into this individual. It's referred to as the indwelling spirit. Or as Tim Chaddock's message on this subject was entitled, Habitat for Divinity. I like that. Our, our heart has become a temple for the Holy Spirit. Here in Romans 8, we see him referred to as the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of him who rose from the dead. And yet, the Trinity is not uh, one person, but rather three persons within the Godhead. They're not all the same with different faces at different times. That would be the ancient heresy of modalism. But rather, there is one God and three persons within the Trinity. And here in Romans 8, we see the Trinity. We see God the Father. We see the Spirit of Christ. And we see the Spirit of Him who rose Christ from the dead. You know, we've heard, ask Jesus into your heart, or Christ is in you, or Jesus is in my heart. And, you know, the little Sunday school kid was asked, how did Jesus get into my heart? How did he walk into my heart? And it's actually a very good theological question. And if we're going to get down to brass tacks, it's actually that the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. And that's why Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I ascend, that I go away. For if I don't go away, then the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And so Jesus says this amazing thing. It's better that me as Jesus, God in the flesh, ascend to heaven so that the Holy Spirit can come down. And it's no longer one dude walking around, and an awesome dude at that, God man, walking around Israel, 
one guy, go see Jesus in Israel today. But rather, he says, hey, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to be the helper, and he's going to dwell in you and be upon you and empower you to live for me and to be a witness to the ends of the earth. And so if you're a believer, you have part of this privilege and power of the indwelling spirit, the spirit dwelling within you. He's been referred to as the helper, as the teacher, as the counselor, as the convictor, and as the convincer. And he dwells in you if you're a Christian. But the wording here is very strong. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you are not his. If you haven't been born again, if you haven't had the indwelling spirit, you are not God's. Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Of course, the fruit of the Spirit that we know from Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, and I probably forgot something in there. But what about that evidence of the Holy Spirit? In John 16, Jesus says, He will testify of me. Do you confess Jesus? Do you testify of Jesus? Do you have the Spirit of God? Are you his? If not, you are condemned. And verse 1 of Romans 8 is not for you. You are condemned, both now and in the future. If you do not have the Spirit of God, you are not a child of God, no matter what Oprah would tell you. But actually, you are hostile toward God. You are enmity with God. You are both enemy and enmity. With God. But if you respond to Christ's bearing sin's curse for us, receive his ransom paying work, his Holy Spirit will dwell in you. You will be in him, as verse 1 showed us, and you'll be set free from guilt and from condemnation and from the power of sin. And how does the Holy Spirit do this rescue operation? John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And then if you just jump a verse, John 16, 13, however, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you in all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me for he will take care of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit rescues us by coming into the world, convicting us of our sin and of righteousness and of judgment, showing us how we've wronged God, and then he saves us. He saves us. He breathes life into us. And then he testifies of Jesus in our life. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He comes in and dwells in our heart. 
You look at the first four Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. You look at blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And you know, the first four Beatitudes show this rescue operation of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Holy Spirit shows us that we are poor that we are spiritually depraved, that we are spiritually bankrupt and in poverty. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And then blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We then mourn because there's no way we can be accepted in our spiritual bankruptcy. This knowledge drives us to our need for a savior. It's that godly grief that 2 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us that godly sorrow leads us to repentance. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says, for they shall inherit the earth. This meek speaks of surrender. As the Holy Spirit convicts us, shows us our depravity, brings about a mourning in our heart against our sin, we then, in meekness, surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Believing in the gospel is a surrender to the Lordship and Saviorship of Jesus Christ. And then, the fourth beatitude, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And then there's just this thirst for the Holy Spirit's work in our life. More of Jesus, more testifying of Jesus, more bearing witness with our spirit that we are sons and daughters of God. This best expression, you know, if you want to have a carnal mind, if you want to have a selfish mind, believe it or not, the best way to be selfish is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The best way to be selfish is to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. So if you really want to be selfish, don't go seeking after the self. Because you'll die. But rather... Seek after God and love him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And you'll save that life. Verse 10, if, the, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. We're in Christ, verse 10 says, and Christ is in you. As Colossians 1.27 says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The beauty of the gospel is the indwelling spirit. The hope of glory. And if the spirit of him, verse 11, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. As Jesus in John chapter 20, verse 19, looked at the disciples after he'd resurrected from the dead, he looked at his disciples and he said, Peace to you. And he showed them his hands and his side. And then he 
breathed on them, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And you know what? I believe that when Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit and breathed on them, that they received the Holy Spirit. This indwelling Spirit. And when we have the indwelling Spirit, Ephesians 1.19 is possible for us. We know the exceeding greatness, finally, of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. When we have the spirit of him who rose Jesus from the dead, that same dynamite power that broke that two-ton rock away from the tomb and brought life to Jesus' body, it's now in us to live a a God-glorifying life. And to be a witness and an ambassador for him. When this spirit dwells in us, Hebrews 13.20 says, that this God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, this great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, he makes you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever. Amen. So this spirit who dwells in you now works in you so that you can walk a victorious Christian life. This spirit of life that we keep reading of, this spirit who brought life to the body of Jesus today can come inside of you and bring life to your mortal body. You can have the spirit in you and you can be his today. Do you hear Jesus knocking at the door of your heart saying, let me in. I'll come in. I'll dine with you. You'll dine with me. We'll have intimacy and relationship. And today, if you hear his knock at the door, respond. If you hear his voice, respond. As Jesus would say, receive the Holy Spirit. Today, will you receive? Don't harden your heart against him. As he would venture to breathe out upon you his Holy Spirit, don't purse your lips together and say, not to me, Lord. But receive today, if you hear his voice. Let's pray. Lord God, the Holy Spirit in us, the hope of glory. What a beautiful, tangible reality today. What a reality that some in this room have not yet experienced. They have not yet received the forgiveness of sins. They've not placed their faith in you in such a way that the atoning work of your blood that pays the ransom for our sins will have paid the ransom for their sins. There are some in this room, Lord, who have yet a carnal mind, 
Yes, pursuing earthly things, pursuing just their, their entertainment, their gratification is from the world and not from you. Yes, but even more so, God, they have a, a fleshly mind, a mind that attempts to appease and please God based on hard work and determination and sweat. But Lord, we pray and we trust that your spirit has done the work of convicting us of that error and showing us that the only way to be saved and the only way to be what you've created us to be is through faith in Christ. It's through faith in the finished work of Christ who died once for all. And if that's you here today, you came in these doors, you came to Calvary Crook County, fleshly minded. Just right now where you're at, you can repent. You can turn. Just being sorrowful over your sin, you can just turn to God. Just confess your sins to him right now in the quiet of your heart. You know your sin. He knows your sin. Just say, Lord, I see what you see. It's utterly sinful. Even my best work on my best day doesn't measure up. And Lord Jesus, I just receive what you've done. I receive this indwelling spirit who testifies of you who bears witness with my spirit that I'm sons and daughters of God. And just as you cry that cry to the Lord today, you can have great joy that he hears, that he has come into your heart. Just by faith, you can trust there's been a rebirthing that's taken place the heart of flesh taken out, or the heart of stone taken out, a heart of flesh placed in. And for the Christian here today, we can rejoice and repent as well of a carnal mind, of going back to doing it on our own minute by minute, and we can repent today. And we can thank Jesus for the work of the Holy Spirit and the victory of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we can worship right now knowing that this resurrection spirit, the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, is in us today. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.